Hello, everyone. Dr. Chris Martinson back here with you with a scouting report. Today is uh, November 30th, I guess, somewhere around the end of November. So um, a couple things I want to talk to you about. And uh, wow, things are really beginning to heat up out there in the world, obviously. So I was really impressed with and, and loved having uh, Professor Simon Michaud on the program recently on Off the Cuff. If you haven't seen that, you should check it out because he talks about the green energy myth and, and just... Well, just how the numbers don't even remotely add up between the narrative we're telling ourselves. Oh, we're going to trans transition off of fossil fuels. The IEA, the International Energy Agency, just sort of says, oh, look, and they show these charts and carbon from fossil fuels goes to zero by 2050. It's like, well, OK. But what does that mean? Like an adult sized conversation would say, what will that take? How much money? How much time? How many resources? like mineral resources and metals? These would be uh, good questions to ask, of course, uh, because so much depends on it, as in everything. Because, of course, as you know, energy is the master resource. It's everything. If you have energy, lots of other things are possible. Without energy, really nothing is possible. So we should get the story right, but instead we're not being treated to adult-sized conversations. Here in the United States, our own energy secretary, Jennifer Granholm, probably doesn't couldn't wire up a battery circuit uh she doesn't understand energy on any level couldn't understand the difference and articulate the difference between power and energy um and probably would confuse a sink and a source uh so hydrogen oh we'll just convert to hydrogen no that's a battery it's it's not a source of energy it's a storage unit of energy so at any rate what do you do um well, uh, he ran through the numbers really quickly, so I want to talk about that today. I'm going to call it the Great Squandering. Let's look at this. So this is a paper that he's got that he mentioned on the program is just about to get. Uh, it's finally made it through peer review. It's amazing how many people wouldn't touch the paper, even though it's just loaded with data, with references, and is absolutely um, pretty solid, at least from my perspective. At least somebody ought to review it and say, yay or nay. Here, here's why. But at any rate, uh, this is now, I, I believe, coming out in publication very soon. The abstract here says, an estimate is presented for the total quantity of raw materials required to manufacture a single generation of renewable technology units at solar panels, wind turbines, etc. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sufficient to replace energy technologies based on combustion of fossil fuels. So this is a global estimate. This is what's going to take the world because it's the world that has to get off of these fossil fuels, maybe because we want to for climate change, but mostly because we're going to have to because they run out someday, just how it is. Uh, so we should have a transition. This estimate, he says here, was derived by assembling the number of units needed against the estimated metal content for individual battery chemistries, wind turbines, solar panels, and electric vehicles. It was shown that both 2019 global mine production, 2022 global reserve estimates, 2022 mineral resources, and estimates of undersea resources as yet untapped were manifestly inadequate for meeting projected demand for copper, lithium, nickel, cobalt, graphite, and vanadium. So then he puts up this chart, right? And, and so it says, listen, let's imagine we just go completely electric at this point in time and we needed to completely do away with fossil fuels for transportation, for all kinds of things. He didn't touch it all, 
the amount of oil that we're going to need to continue to run the 2,000 separate chemical feedstock inputs that oil provides to everything from paraffins, waxes, glues, uh, pharmaceutical products, plastics in all of its many forms, you name it. Even just leaving that aside, just what do we need in terms of the energy output from oil and coal and natural gas? And here's the answer. And the answer is, well, if you needed 48 hours um, of uh, approximately 10% uh, battery storage, so, so let's say power storage buffer, right? Um, 48 hours plus, plus or minus 10% power storage buffer. So this is just for 48 hours. If we just wanted to build the system out and all we can have in the system is like two days of cloudy, calm weather. Is that a realistic assessment? No, because honestly, you can't do with a grid down situation. If your grid goes down because you ended up with 49 hours, 10% buffer. Let's say you had 72 hours, three calm days with clouds. Would, what would happen? Well, then your grid goes down. And when your grid goes down, lots of things don't just restart. You know, once that grid has to be kept at 60 cycles, plus or minus uh, 60 cycles per second, plus or minus a tiny, tiny, tiny margin. Like it can't go to 58, 52, 55, 40. Uh-uh. Things break. The, the grid goes down. And when the grid goes down, you know, ventilators stop working at hospitals and industrial processes stop and aluminum freezes in the channels at the foundry. And has to be chipped out, uh, very, very expensive restarts. It's bad. But just assuming just a 48-hour buffer, we can argue over whether we think that's sufficient or not. What do we get? Well, we'd have to mine copper at current rates of uh, mining. We'd have to mine that for 28.8 years just to make Gen 1. So that gets us, for those of you keeping score at home, right around to 2050. We're going to have to do can put all of our copper mining has to go towards this project just to get to a 48-hour buffer. All right, next, uh, nickel, uh, 74-ish years almost there. Um, what about lithium? Uh, looks like lithium chemistry is a little behind the curve here with 1,248 years of mining required. Cobalt, couple millennia, I'm sorry, couple couple centuries. Uh, graphite, four centuries. Vanadium, three-quarter of a millennia. Uh, germanium, forget about that. 32,000 years. That's off the charts. All those rare earth elements, neodymium, prosodium, all that stuff. Um, those, uh, those are what we need to build the magnets for the wind towers currently. Uh, and so at current rates of mining decades, um, to get there. So we don't have decades to millennia to get the job done. We just don't. So what, what, what's the plan? That's the problem. There really isn't a plan. You need to be aware of that. So what happens if there is no plan? What, what happens if this is just all complete narrative BS and they know that? Because they have to know that. This is simple math. Like what I'm showing you here should be shocking because it's not being talked about more commonly. That's the shock because it's just, it's the simplest of math. How much stuff do we need? How much are we getting it out of the ground? And by the way, if you go to Simon's paper and you look at it, it's hundreds of pages long, hundreds and hundreds of references. It's got, it, it tears through every component. You can argue with the methodology. That's science. He Maybe he's got it right. Maybe he's got it wrong. Almost certainly has it wrong in, in details here and there. No biggie. But the broad sweep, is it right or wrong? How many, how come this isn't like one of the most intensively studied, hotly debated things? The 
United States Energy Agency under Jennifer Granholm ought to be dedicating billions and billions of dollars to trying to resolve that question. Like I would spend a billion dollars in that organization. Prove Simon wrong or show me how we can get it right. No fantasy vaporware, no like BS narratives, no like, oh, you know, if only we could get rid of these naysayers on the climate side, we could finally have the political will we need to finally get to the wind and solar utopia we all imagine. That doesn't cut it. Hard nosed reality. That's what we're up against here. And we can't do with any more of this fantasy fluff crap that we're getting fed to daily by the media. Um, and by the people who should be nominally in charge of this. So, so this is really distressing. I mean, just, it's not going to, it's just not going to happen. All right. It's distressing. Not that it's not going to happen because, Hey, you know, things don't always work out for organisms and their energy fantasies, but it's distressing because of how few people know about this and how few people are talking about this because this should be, I mean, this is everything. If you care about your kids, your grandkids as yet unconceived and unborn, you care about this. This is where prosperity comes from. Why did I call this site Peak Prosperity? Because I know about this kind of stuff, and I'm pretty sure that we, the collective we, aren't going to do squat about it until we're really slapped in the face. All right, well, so what does all of this mean then? Well, let's carry on. First up, let's take a look. This is um, a huge percentage of the overall copper production comes from just 10 mines okay you've heard me talk about the bingham canyon i've got it in yellow there that's all the way this it's it's fading it's all the way down there at the bottom on this uh wiggle chart of lines the biggest one on there is the escondida that's in the brown you see that there but you can clearly see that that nearly all of this increased mine output from and by the way this chart goes way way back right so what are we starting in the late 1800s there we come to 1900 on through um, but you look there, that big increase between 1990 and 2000, whoosh, that big upslope there, that was mostly due to just the Escondida mine right there. And, uh, it, well, let's take a look at that one because that, that one's intense. It's so big, you really got to get kind of high up. Actually, it's probably best appreciated from space. This is what the Escondida mine looks like. It's a big, big hole in the ground. Those little tiny, thin little lines down there, those are roads. So if you've been flying in a plane, you know, you know, we're pretty high up at this point. Big tailing ponds up there. Uh, it's just a mess. You, you got hard tailing, soft tailings. Uh, let, let's be clear. Mining is one of the least environmentally good things you could do. So for one thing alone on the narrative structure is, oh, we need to be green. Green implying growing things. Green implying that the nature and, and the ecosphere is, is happy now. Um, there's nothing green about mining. Mining tears the earth up, creates a huge amount of toxic waste um, through the process of processing the ore itself because of the acids and sometimes mercury and things that they use to extract the metals and other ore elements, but also because the tailings themselves are usually that rock all crushed up. It can now leach out all kinds of stuff very, very, very rapidly uh, compared to when it was all solidly, solidifiedly solidly locked into a, a rock matrix. So at any rate, it's very much not a environmentally okay thing. So there's your green technology. That's what it looks like from space, right? And we do all of that so we can get this stuff, big old, you know, stacks of copper. Uh, it's, it's intense. Um, 
does the copper exist to do everything? And of course, Simon says, no, but it's not just that it, it get this. It's not just that it doesn't exist kind of long-term by 2050, 2100. What do we got? It's that we know now that uh, copper is in exceedingly short supply, exceedingly short supply right now for the next 10 years looking forward because these t- mines take a long time to open up. One does not simply create this like, like, oh, let's get some more copper. Bing, you have that next year. Uh, it doesn't work that way. This is a very, very long duration project with billions and billions of capital, lots of human effort uh, just to begin mining. And that's if you have a mine prospect, a resource you know about that's of an appropriate grade and you want to go after it and you have the infrastructure there and you have, of course, the energy there, the roads, water, need a lot of water. There's a lot of things that go into a mine. It's like, yeah, you could, you could have like this perfect, beautiful copper deposit, but if you don't have any infrastructure around it, you got to build that first. And if you don't have any water, you're way out of luck. So these things all have to be resolved. It's very complex, hard work. It's not like you just to hear the Federal Reserve and you order up some copper futures and magically copper appears in the LME warehouse. It's just not, it's just not how it works. And so right now, uh, this is what we're seeing. This is in Reuters. This was in May of 2023. They say here, at the time of the ICSC's last meeting in October, it was expecting global mine production to serve uh, of copper to surge by 3.9% in 2022 and 5.3% this year in 2023. Huh, I'll shave that back. It was actually 3%, so a full 0.9% shaved off of that and slashed its forecast to 3% again this year. We're going to see if they can even achieve that. Only two major copper mines were brought on stream between 2017 and 2021, four years. But four big supply additions have been ramping up simultaneously. We got the Kamoa uh, Kakula mine in the Congo and um, the Kualaveco mine in Peru. These are greenfield projects, meaning brand new. They're not taking some old brownfield like it's an old mine, but we're going to get more out of it. We're putting more effort in greenfield. Brand new mines, cool. While... uh, the, the Carbreda Blanca 2 and the Spence Sioux SEO mines uh, in Chile are boosting output. So those are brownfield projects, I guess, uh, as they switch from oxide to sulfide ores. So they're going after a different ore body there. So, okay, all right, we didn't bring on what we thought, and, and mine growth is not quite nearly what we thought it was. How about this in mining.com? And this is uh, just came out in July then. Copper supply gap, according to McKinsey, a consulting company, Global electrification is expected to increase annual copper demand to 36.6 million tons by 2031 compared to the current demand of roughly 25 million tons. So uh, almost was at 11.6 million more tons. That, that's a big addition. However, the consultancy firm forecasts copper supply to be around 30.1 million tons, leaving a gap of 6.5 million tons by the start of the next decade, this is an enormous, enormous number. The only way you could meet that gap would be through recycling, which means we'll have to cannibalize current uses of copper to bring it into supply so we can use it for, well, electrification. Now, what happens if the supply isn't there? What happens if it just isn't there? Well, prices explode until the markets say this is the highest, best use for copper at this price, or you just don't do the things you thought you were going to do. That's both of those things are actually equally likely in this story. We'll get a mix of both here in the Wall Street Journal. Even, um, uh, you know, they came out and just said, you know, oh, the market overall is pretty tight. 
says Robert Edwards, a copper analyst at CRU. Long term, there's a narrative around resource scarcity in the green transition with EVs and renewables, as well as the build out of electricity grids on paper. It's quite a substantial supply gap opening up over the next 10 years. However, there's no slack in the system, no buffer, said Merrick's head of market analytics, Guy Wolf, in a recent conference. At a recent conference in Switzerland, he said that copper was the only metal with locked-in demand growth, but indicated prices would need to rise to $15,000 a metric ton to attract investment in new mines. However, uh, futures say that it's currently hanging out around 9000 a ton. Wait a minute. This is the simplest thing you could possibly imagine in the world of economics. Price, supply, and demand. It's a chart with a balance point, right? Um, you've got price as the curve. You've got supply and demand as your two axes, and price should, should slide along there. So this is one of the easiest things, and markets are supposed to be forward-looking. This should be an easy thing for markets to look forward and say, hey, looks like we have a pretty major supply shortfall. Therefore, price is going to go up, prices rise, and then you know, supplies uh, get created to meet that new price. That's how it's supposed to work. We don't have markets anymore. We have markets, double air quotes. It's pretty bad. And so this is what's been going on. So look at the price of copper here on this chart. This goes way back. This goes way back. Um, What's this, a 25-year chart or so? All right. Uh, and you can see here that at, at current prices, copper is about the same as it was back in uh, 2006, right? Have, has inflation advanced since 2006? Do you think the cost of mining copper has expanded since 2006? Do you think demand is higher than it was in 2006? Do you think there's anything that's even remotely comparable between today and 2023, late, almost 2024, and what was happening back in 2006? Everything is different. Supply and demand were largely balanced back then. Costs were a lot lower. <clears throat> Nobody is going to be out there excitedly going after, <clears throat> excuse me, copper at these prices because, as Simon Michaud said, look, the ore grades are going down and down and down. This is something I covered in the crash course. When the ore grades go down from a 10% to a 5 to a 1 to a 0.1% ore grade, the cost, the energy cost, goes up exponentially to try and well, not try, but to extract that metal out of there. So exponentially higher costs than in 2006, but the same price. This is nominal price. This isn't inflation adjusted. This is just the price. Same price today as in 2006. Folks, that's broken. That is BS. That is not a functioning market. This is not how humans should comport themselves. Let's imagine that we really agree we got to switch off fossil fuels and we're going to have to build out this massive, complicated, super amazing big giant electrified something or other right and it's got solar and wind and maybe we throw a few nukes in there but we need more transmission lines we got electric cars the whole nine yards we're gonna need copper so a good thinking species would come forward and go we should make sure that the markets are are sending the right price signals and if they're not we're gonna have to figure out how to goose those price signals a little bit if we think that's what we need right somehow Instead, I submit to you the exact opposite of that is happening, that the reason that this is going nowhere is because the central banks are not playing this game. They don't know dick all about what's going on with our energy system. They don't care. They're not interested. They know nothing about it. They sit there in their little world of numbers. 
And they sit there in their little world of Wall Street and they fiddle with these things. They have been manipulating these commodity markets, not just not just the central banks, not just Wall Street, the whole financialized shit show of a market, again, double air quotes on that, that we have conspires to give you this crap. And it does this all the time. And by the way, this is going to lead to absolute ruin because we don't have appropriate price signals, right? Supply and demand are no longer balanced by anything at this point in time. Instead, it's speculators and people like central banks who have a, a profound motivation to keep prices down. And you know how they you get what you measure. That's what they tell you in business. You get what you measure. So they measure this thing called the CPI, which is the Consumer Price Index. Okay. That's our measure of inflation. What's in there? Ah, oh, you know, goods and services. Well, you know, there's things like energy and metals and stuff and all that. And so because that's the stuff that we're measured, if you can make those things go down in price, you will. That's just what happens because we're measuring that and you want that smaller. So let's smash the price of that. Everything that central banks can smash the price of has been smashed in price. Now, they can't smash the prices of houses directly, but they can smash the cost of money driving interest rates down, which makes the price of houses go up. So that's fun. They can directly smash the price of stocks higher, which they like to do. And I'll talk about that in, in, a, in a future piece that's coming out soon. But the other thing they can do is they can smash commodities lower. And so they do that. They smash commodities lower all the time because it makes inflation look better, which makes them look better, which is an ego thing. And it allows them to print more money and saying, oh, but inflation is low. But meanwhile, this is what you get. And this is going to lead to massive future disaster. This needs to be talked about. We need to make sure that we no longer have this happening. This shouldn't be done. Full stop. This crushing of the price of commodities. You, you think I'm nuts? How about this? You see this? So even JP Morgan commodities finally came out and said, oh, geez, you know, oil, because oil is, if there, if energy's the master resource, oil is the king of the master resources. This is, this is king, king oil. They see a 1.1 million barrel per day supply deficit emerging in 2025. It's their estimate. Widening to 7.1 million barrels per day of oil shortfall by 2030. Driving, very euphemistically, upside risks to oil prices. <laughs> no, no. And look what they're, they're, they're showing here. The baseline supply just whoosh. It's called peak oil, folks. Those fields, the baseline supplies from the old cheap fields, that big blue wedge on the bottom. That's the Gawar field in Saudi Arabia. That's the that's every conventional field where you stuck a straw straight into the ground and oil came out. That stuff's going down. Okay. Well, then there's this this lighter blue smear on top that's the replacement and it's growing rapidly, but that's expensive oil. That is low net energy oil. That is shale oil. That is tar sands. That's Orinoco Belt super heavy oil, which you have to get out of the ground with a spatula practically. They use steam and stuff, but <clears throat> it's it's goopy ass stuff, right? Uh, so th what that means is we're replacing the stuff that has high net energy with stuff that has lower net energy. And it's a slow replacement cycle over time, right? And then, you know, there's some other supply growth and stuff like this total supply. But total supply is the red line on the top. <clears throat> and total demand is what we need to keep the whole shit show running, right? We need constantly expanding economies. We need the GDP to grow by three or 4%. We need uh, debt to constantly grow by eight or 9%. That whole system runs if and only if that red line and that black line on top match. That red line 
according to J.P. Morgan commodities, not doofus sitting in his, you know, little farm studio uh, analyzing stuff anymore. And so pretty intense, right? I mean, what would you expect for the king of master resources? What would you expect from a price standpoint if you had this information? Because you know it's it's non-negotiable. Oil is non-negotiable. It's not like, well, you know, we'll just do with less oil now. No, no. This chart says collapsing economies because you have this financial system that has to constantly grow, and you have now the source of growth nosing over. There's a little fat in the system, but not that much. So this is a really dire chart, if it's true. And it is true from everything I've analyzed. So what would you expect? Probably not this. What? Same story as for copper. Oil is now exactly the same price as it was back in 2006. Even though it costs a lot more to get it out of the ground, even though there's a lot less of it, even though we're facing a structural perpetual, because I don't see any, it's not like this chart stops in 2030 and then it gets better. It's like, you can probably, you see the trend there, right? Supply and demand growing wider and wider. This is peak oil. This is peak oil. The only appropriate price signal for peak oil would be a massive explosion in the price of oil at this point in time. And there's nothing. In fact, if you wanted to invest in energy stocks, this isn't investment advice, but if you look at the proportion that energy sto oil stocks in particular make up of the S&P 500, it's one of the lowest ratios ever in history. It forms the lowest percentage ever. <laughs> it's like a percent or two, like negligible. You know, it, it, it's not even, it's in all of the other 490 other companies in the S&P 500 actually develop their, get all of their uh, ability to be companies at all from energy. Energy is like negligible at this point. We're just like our story is so broken. And why has this been smashed down like this? I submit to you it's because central banks have access to oil futures and oil trading. And they've been able to come in and, and smash the bejesus out of not just oil, but also natural gas. I've been watching this happen over and over again. And they really put the brakes on right there where you saw that, that where it comes down there hard. There, there's a new entrant in the oil markets, which you talk to oil traders like, uh, there's somebody comes in and just magically sells 2 million barrels of oil in a one minute tick. So we got central banks monkeying around or, or some other big interested players. Are they governments? Who cares? But somebody with a narrative, somebody with a point of view, somebody who wants to tell us that oil is cheap and is cheap right now, which I don't know, tells us things are calm. You know, oil post the uh, October 7th, when you had the Hamas attack in the Middle East gets really inflamed and there's all kinds of stuff and U.S. carrier groups are moving into the whole region. You know what happened? Oil went up for a day and it's been going down ever since. Yeah, right. Uh, so again, our markets are now narrative machines they are not really what we would call markets or or here what about this uh wheat wheat exact same price as it was in 2007 talk to any farmer land costs uh input costs feedstock costs uh fertilizer costs every cost you could possibly imagine has exploded higher and wheat you're going to get the same as in 2007 right? I wish my health insurance cost the same as in 2007. I wish colleges cost the same as in 2007. Why is it that all the commodities are just worth, are just bullshit? Oh, it's, it's, this isn't because of supply and demand. This isn't because of markets. This is because 
we have official intervention all the time now. So this is how I feel about it now. This is what it looks like to me. Uh, it's all fraudulent. That's the Truman Show. You know, it, it's just, this is where we are. Now, uh, there's a corollary to this, which is when this simulated environment goes, just like with the Truman Show's character, main character, right, Jim Carrey in that, when the illusion is finally revealed for what it actually is, I think he's sailing his boat and sails it right into the edge of the <laughs> of the uh, screen in the set. Um, when that finally happens, the illusion's over. So I think what we have to be ready for is that when this finally does go, it's going to burst. It's going to burst very badly. It's going to be pretty dark. Uh, and this explains the official devotion to this manipulation, right? I watched manipulations in the markets on an almost daily basis, minute by minute basis. Sometimes it's a whole ecosystem. It's not just the fed, but it's all these proxy minions out there on wall street. That includes, you know, the citadels and the JP Morgans and all of this and that rewatch the big short. And by the way, that's from the context of 2007 and eight, right? And, and, and so quaint how our markets were somewhat heavily manipulated then. Well, today, the command and control infrastructure using computers is astonishing um, in its control level. So that's all fine. It's all fun and games until somebody loses an eye. And that's the thing I'm very worried about here is that they've manipulated it so much that it's become endemic, become structural. They no longer know. They wouldn't even begin to know how to actually run a real market that wasn't just a complete harvesting mechanism, skimming operation, completely fraudulent that just funnels money to the wealthy because it's a big club and you ain't in it, right? And the problem with that is it becomes more and more and more detached from reality. And that's what we're going to be talking about, of course, in the upcoming webinar series with Brett Weinstein, with Peter St. Ange, with Ed Dowd, who I just interviewed yesterday. Uh, that's coming out uh, soon, hopefully. And uh, a great interview, by the way. <clears throat> when you see this for what it is, you understand what the real risks are and you understand the game that they're playing and you understand all the things that they are doing and why they're doing them. And a very simple conclusion emerges, which is they're going to keep doing this until they break it. But when it breaks, prediction, it's going to break as comprehensively as when the light fell <laughs> from the sky. And he had his first dawning realization to the point that he poked his, the spousesprit of his boat into the edge of the set while he was sailing that day. Uh, it, once it's over, it's over. There's no regaining it. There, there's no possibility of all the other characters in the Truman Show stepping more fully into their character to persist the illusion. When it goes, it goes. So that's why I want you to be prepared, want you to be ready. I know this is a lot to get your mind around. It's a lot for me to get my mind around. I've been at this a long time. The adjustment reaction is not easy. But it's time to just look at it for what it is, see the data for what it is, let the data tell the story it's going to tell, put the dots together and see which way these dots make the most sense, right? And when you find the way that makes the most sense to you, then that's the answer. Maybe you see it completely differently than I do. Totally fine. But I'm looking at this and I see manipulated markets. I see how I think I understand from a human behavior standpoint how this could have developed over time. I'm pretty sure I understand uh, that maybe I would have operated no differently in that incentive structure. Probably wouldn't have, you know, doing what you do to get your job done, to get by, to 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 not fall out of favor with all of your colleagues. Uh, there, there's just a way that things sort of 
wander off. But this is like uh, the Federal Reserve to me is like a Boy Scout troop on its first map reading exercise that just went off course and got lost. And now they're just getting further and further lost uh, because they never quite mastered everything they needed to master about how all of this works because they grew up at a time when they didn't have to worry about resources. Just one of those things. So with that, hey, um, thanks very much for listening and we'll be back soon. Uh, I can't wait to talk about this, but that's it. That's how I see it all now. Truman Markets. All right. Thanks for listening. A lot to process. Let's talk about this all and uh, keep the conversation going. Bye for now.